welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Um, uh, I'm going to read the scripture. Our scripture today it comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 32. And I'm going to be reading uh, verses 1 to 24. Would you all stand as we read the word of God together? It's a long passage, so buckle up. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him, And made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have become quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should you burn, your anger burn against these people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back, The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and his dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf the people had made and burnt it in the fire and he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them, that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. This is the word of the Lord. 
You can be seated. Well, um, we are uh, continuing in our Eastertide series that we're calling Defiant Hope. And I'm very excited about this series. To quote our honorable senior pastor, Mike Lucan, from last Sunday, Christian hope is the anticipation and the expectation that God will ultimately come through and everything he has promised will eventually happen. So it's fitting during these 50 days after Easter to celebrate a hope that defiantly challenges a world that is increasingly pessimistic, demoralized, and seemingly hopeless. He has risen. We got to say it a little better. <laughs> he is risen. This morning, um, we're going to talk about this thing called imitation hope. And in this case, the word imitation means fake or artificial or counterfeit, like counterfeit money that tricks you into thinking that it's the real thing. And like counterfeit money, these imitations fool us into making us think that they have value, even though they have no value at all, like imitation diamonds or imitation crab. Have you ever had Imitation crab, by the way. You dip it in butter, um, throw it in a pot of chipino. It tastes delicious. Until you start to think about what it might actually be made of, and then it doesn't seem so good, right? Now, I think I know what you're thinking. Who would give any credence at all to any kind of imitation hope? Who would be fooled by these fake, superficial imitations of hope? Certainly as Christ followers... You're not one of those people who would be so easily duped or deceived. I certainly am not. By the way, I just, I'm really excited because I stopped by the nearest convenience store on the way here this morning and I bought a lottery ticket. <laughs> After all, the pot is now $230 million. It's only $2 each, so it's really a bargain. And if you think about it, the odds of winning are only 292201300 and 38 to 1. Actually, I bought two Powerball tickets, so mathematically, I've completely doubled my odds. Now, wouldn't it be great if I won? Man, that would solve all of my problems. I'd pay off the mortgage, put in a small pool, take a little vacation. Of course, I'd want to share it, too, right? I'm, I'm a charitable guy. I'd pay off the kids' loans, tithe to the church, take a few of you out to lunch, and then I'd buy a car, uh, a fast car, candy apple red, nothing fancy, just a, you know, something like a convertible, I could see myself flying down highway one with the sun on my face and the sea breeze and my hair, <sighs> oh sorry, what were we talking about today, oh yeah, imitation hope, things that we put our trust in, that really have no value or permanence. Things that will inevitably disappoint us. Now, seriously, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever dreamed about winning the lottery? S seriously. How many of you have made that little mental list of all of the things that you would do or get if you, want, if you won one? It's tempting, isn't it? Yeah, we think, man, that would solve all of our worries, take care of all of my problems. And while there might be a remote possibility to that line of thinking, there's also a sense that is behind all of it, that is this idea that if you won, then you could relax, 
and maybe you don't have to rely on God so much. You don't have to trust him as much. But is that what God actually calls us to do? Well, let me take a look at the statistics for just a second. Lottery and sports betting had a market share of $210 billion in 2021. Americans bought over 45 billion lottery tickets during that time. Around 55% of lottery winners claimed that they are happier after winning the lottery, but approximately 70% of lottery winners end up going broke. And here's what I think is an even more telling statistic. Lottery surveys reveal that 99% of winners continue to play the lottery even after winning. So what do we really put our hope in? This morning, I want to address some of the counterfeit places we as followers of Christ place our hope. Because we, as followers of Jesus Christ, aren't immune to the temptations of golden idols. Now, when I refer to golden idols today, I mean things that we place our hope in instead of or in addition to Jesus. And a disclaimer right up front, I may tick some of you off this morning. But if I do, I hope I do it for all the right reasons. So would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, you are our hope, our one constant and ever-present hope, our future hope, and the hope that holds us secure in your hands. Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. And help us, Lord, through your Holy Spirit to remind us of that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, to start it off, I want to ask this question. What are your golden idols? Now, this is a personal question, one you have to kind of ponder a bit. So I'm going to take a chance and be self-disclosing for a moment. And I'm going to start off by telling you the biggest golden idol of my own life. I started playing the piano when I was almost five. I took to it like a duck in water. I was playing Bach and Beethoven by the time I was 12. I was composing songs by the time I was 14. I can't explain it, but for as long as I can remember, I could basically sit down at the piano and play any song I heard on the radio. By the time I was a teenager, I was playing soft rock at a pizza parlor. I was learning how to do studio recording. I had even opened for a national touring act at my college. I was performing regularly and composing constantly. By the time I graduated, my golden idol was fully cast and polished. I was going to be a rock star. That was it. I wanted to write songs, play big stages, tour the world, meet lots of rock and roll babes, wear leather pants. The rock and roll dream very much pervaded my thoughts, my dreams, and how I live my life. It affected my career who my friends were, how I saw the world, and how I saw myself. My life goals, my finances, and even my identity were completely consumed by the idea that I was going to be this rock star, and there was nothing that was going to stop me. So I was studio recording. I got involved in rock bands, jazz fusion bands. I was playing piano bar at a swanky club downtown. I spent a lot of money on, a lot of money, on music gear and I spent a lot of time learning how to use it. I was getting my musical resume together for that inevitable move to LA so I could get discovered. I look back now and I see how dangerous that was. 
Had God not gotten a hold of me and helped straighten out my priorities, I would have given my whole life to this and got nothing of eternal value back. And frankly, it continues to be dangerous to me because I will always suffer from bouts of pride and selfishness. So that was my golden idol, my imitation hope. And there are lots and lots and lots of other golden idols out there. But I'm just going to point out four major areas that people might have their own golden idols. One of the areas where people have imitation hope is in their finances. And this is a lot more complicated and multifarious than just playing the lottery. Many of us are older and we're in retirement. We're planning for it. We have our 401ks, our pension plans, our home mortgages that we're paying down, our plans for living the good life. And you might be thinking to yourself, all I need to do is get X amount of money of assets in my portfolio and then I will be set, right? That's your hope. For those of us who are in the starting stages, there's buying the house, getting the kids in a good school, having the late model SUV with all the child seats. And you think to yourself, I just need to get that next raise or that next position or get that next bonus and then you can relax. That's your hope. Or you might be a young person just getting that degree or getting in the right career. That's your hope. That's what you're pinning your future on. And I'm not saying that these things are bad in and of themselves. But in very subtle and perhaps insidious ways, are we putting our hopes in these things more than we ought? Jesus shared a parable about this in the book of Luke. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant crop, harvest. He thought to himself, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So let me be clear here. It's not bad. It is not a bad thing that the rich man was planning for the future. On the contrary, it is, it is prudent. It is good stewardship to plan for such things. The problem begins when we begin to put our hope in these material worldly ventures instead of God's plan for us. If we're fortunate to have a 401k or a, or a home or a family to take care of, man, that's great. But let's be aware of where we have put our hope. Our hope should be in God and God alone. Then we can be grateful for, uh, to him for whatever financial or material blessings that we might have. This is a subtle but extremely important distinction. As Christ followers, we place our hope in Jesus and then we can thank him for the blessings which come from following him, not the other way around. At its core, I think this is an issue of identity. Do you see yourself as a rich person, a successful, financially prudent, intelligent person like the man in the parable? Or do you see yourself simply as a sinner, saved by God's grace, and endowed with a certain amount of financial and material wealth that you've been tasked to steward for his kingdom? 
Is your identity in Christ or is it in the things you own and the achievements you make? Okay, a second area of imitation hope is people. And this can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. And I'll share a couple of, couple of them. Have you ever thought, if I can just get this one person to like me or go out with me or marry me, then everything would be okay? Or have you ever needed the unhealthy approval of a boss or an authority figure to feel good about yourself? Have you ever looked to a social media site to validate yourself? Have you ever put someone on a pedestal, a sports figure, a political figure, a Kardashian? These are some of the uh, ways, examples of how we make people an imitation hope. For myself, I've given people way too much power over me because for some reason, their unhealthy approval or alignment meant something to me. I've needed the unhealthy approval of bosses. I've needed my political figures to be right, even when they're wrong. I've needed my sports teams to win and attached my personal happiness and identity to them in very unhealthy ways. When I was in high school, I needed the prettiest girl in band to like me and obsessed over it for months and months at a time. And there's one other example of putting, other, you're putting your hope in a person. For some of us, we put all of our hope in ourselves. Those of us with pride issues, those of us who have a hard time trusting others due to life experience, well, we become self-reliant and perhaps even distrusting. And we have a hard time putting our faith in anything other than ourselves. So as Christ followers, we say that we trust in Jesus, but really we're actually trusting ourselves to make things right. So having hope in Jesus turns into simply having hope in ourselves and then tossing up these wishful prayers every once in a while. These are all examples of how we can put our hope in people in ways that may be unhealthy or ultimately futile. Because people are fallible, sinful, transitory, imperfect. The prophet Jeremiah says this, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Um, a third area where we might be able to have imitation hope is politics. Now, anytime any one of us stands behind this podium here and attempts to talk about politics, we know we're walking right into a minefield, and today is no exception. But I will say this. When anyone gets involved in matters of power and money and prestige, and that's a lot of what modern politics is, one is pulled into a system that is broken and flawed in many ways. And that broken and flawed system will induce a person, any person, into compromising whatever modicum of integrity he or she may have. That's just the way it is. And we know what the Bible says about human beings. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, it's not a political statement to say that President Biden is a sinner. It's not a 
It's not a political statement to say that President Trump is a sinner. Or the Senate and the House are filled with sinners. Or so are the political lobbyists who lobby our legislators. Even the guys in robes who sit in our courts are sinners. These are not political statements. These are biblically grounded statements about the state of our beings. Yes, the founding fathers were smart enough to know this, and they put some checks and balances in the very, into the very fabric of our political system. But we all know that that isn't enough. That isn't nearly enough. There's this undercurrent of political discourse that may be summarized this way. If only my candidate gets elected and my political party takes control, then everything will be okay. If we can just get the right people in the right positions of our government and we can vote out all of those crazy, wacky, far-wing people on the other side, then America will be okay. And maybe that might be true. I don't know. But truly, when we start to believe that mortal, sinful man can be the source of our salvation, then maybe we've lost sight of true hope. Dr. Hunter Baker, he's a scholar and a political scientist. He had this to say. As much as we've become excited over the presidencies of people like Donald Trump, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and Ronald Reagan, we should be far more attentive to the reality of the kingship of Jesus Christ. I studied politics most of my life. I have lived and died over the many victories and defeats that come from modern campaigns and legislative battles. But the older I get, the more clear it is to me that the most, significant I ha- uh, the most significant thing I have to say about politics is that Jesus Christ is king. But the Bible says it much more succinctly. In Psalm 118, it says this. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Now, at this point, most of you would agree with me. I mean, it would kind of be silly to not to because we're in a church and everything. Of course, Jesus is more important than politics. But let me give you a litmus test to see whether politics may indeed be an imitation hope to you. If you can't sit down with a fellow Christ follower who has the polar opposite political bent as you and celebrate your greater commonality in Jesus then maybe you have embraced politics as an imitation hope. If you can't get together in Christian love with a political rival, then you aren't living with Jesus as your king. If you're more passionate about politics than you are about God, then you might be clinging to an imitation hope. Okay, done with that one. (laughs) Okay, now let me step out of that particular minefield and step into an equally dangerous minefield, Religion. Specifically, I want to make the distinction about having hope in Jesus versus having hope in religion. And when I say religion, I mean anything organized by man, including Oak Hills Church. I've already mentioned having false hope in people. There are many, many religious leaders that have been that that people have been duped into following today and throughout history. Terrible tyrannical, manipulative people, but also well-meaning, God-fearing people who have gone askew in some way. 
The problem is that a lot of people put their faith in God through another person, like a pastor or a popular book author or a TV evangelist. They attach their faith in God to a person. But every single one of these religious leaders is a fallible, imperfect human being. The problem is that when that person has some moral transgression or says something contrary in some way, it shakes the faith of the people who follow them. Here's what happens occasionally here at Oak Hills. Some really good-hearted new people will come to us, and there have been many of you lately, I'm so glad for this. They'll come to us and say, we really love it here at Oak Hills. The people are friendly. The children love it. The worship is great. The sermon's so-so, but we'll learn to live with it. And we thank them, and we welcome them, and we're genuinely grateful to have them here. But then there's a part of me that thinks inside, at some point, we're probably going to disappoint them eventually, because we're human. The thing is, will they stay with us even after we disappoint them? Why are there so many Christian denominations? It's a complicated question, but I'll give you one simple answer. It's because we disagree with each other. We disagree on theology, on practices, on the date of Easter, on musical styles, even on the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. We sing, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And then we put our hope in organizations and public personas. We build them up and we attach our faith to them in unhealthy ways. And we use these established structures to actually create factions which separate ourselves from one another the book of proverbs 3 warns us against this it says trust in the lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight now obviously i'm not saying that religion is is a bad thing quite the contrary i've spent the better part of my life in religious organizations trying to make a difference in people's lives What I am saying is to put your hope in the Lord and the Lord alone, not hope in some TV evangelist or in some denomination, not even hope in this church, Oak Hills, or even hope in me, because we will all eventually fail you, but God will never fail you, I promise. Okay, so... We've talked about four possible types of imitation hope. Finances, people, politics, and religion. And there are plenty of others. And I want to point out something in common with all of these imitation hopes, especially for the Christ follower. It's the unhealthy attachment of these imitations hopes to the one true hope. In other words, we put our faith in Jesus plus something else. And it kind of looks like this. Hope equals Jesus plus my 401k plan. Hope equals Jesus plus the Republican Party. Hope equals Jesus plus Oak Hills Church or Lakeside or Bayside or Creekside or one of the other side churches. (laughs) And perhaps we do this because at some level we're hedging our bets. We put hope in other things because we don't quite trust God to come through for us. Our scripture this morning is from the book of Exodus, chapter 32, the story of the golden calf. Now, we all know this story. Moses was on the mountain representing the people of Israel to God himself, and Aaron is at base camp 
leading the people in the creation and worship of a golden calf. Moses gets back from his trip. He's on a spiritual high. And he sees this and he goes ballistic. For he has seen the very face of God. And his fellow Israelites are content to worship a tiny metal statue. Why did the people insist on creating this golden idol? Well, according to the account, the people got restless. They felt lost, perhaps abandoned by Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they panicked. So they gathered their gold jewelry, they melted it down, and they created a god. Think about that. They were willing to bow down to something that they had made with their very own hands, something of their own creation, something that was obviously not a god. Does that sound familiar to you? I love how Aaron tries to deflect the, the blame in verse 24. I don't know how this happened, Moses. I just threw some gold into the fire and out pops this calf. I also love how God describes his chosen in this moment. He calls them a stiff-necked people. Well, we are still so often a stiff-necked people, aren't we? We become restless at the inactivity of God in our lives. We become panicked in the, surfaces, in the circumstances which buffets us in our lives. And so we create for ourselves these golden idols that we bow down to, that we trust in, and we put our hope in. But such things are transitory, uncertain, and often disappoint. Well, the rest of the story in chapter 32 isn't so pretty. For the wages of their sin for creating a false god on which to worship was death. But there is hope, a true hope, God's hope. Now, there's this difference between worldly imitation hope and Christian hope because the hope of the Christ follower is Jesus. So as I wrap up, I'm going to give you four quick ways that worldly hope and Christian hope are different. First, Christian hope is in Jesus alone, not Jesus plus something else. Our sufficiency is in Christ. Jesus declared, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christian hope is based on the truth that Jesus died on a cross for our sins, was buried, and on the third day he was resurrected from the tomb. God's promise is that all who believe in him will share in the hope of forgiveness of sins, renewal of our souls, and life with the Father through Jesus Christ, now and for all eternity. He alone is the way and the truth and the light. Second, Christian hope is certain and secure. It's not wishful thinking like wishing for a pony. His hope is assured. So we can have perfect and complete confidence in it. His hope is indisputable, reliable, unshaken, and completely trustworthy. Hebrews chapter 6 says this, we have this hope as an anchor for their soul, firm and secure. Third, Christian hope is based on a reality that we can experience now. It's not just a future hope, but one that we can have now in the midst of our circumstances. And I want to remind you what uh, Pastor Mike uh, shared with us last week. Christian hope is not that God will change our present circumstances according to our will. What this present hope promises is that God will be with us 
to walk with us, to comfort us, to help grow our hearts and our souls, and to give us the strength to move through the circumstance, no matter how difficult or ugly. God's hope gives us the kind of peace that passes understanding. Dallas Willard used to say, the world is a perfectly safe place to be, as long as you're living with Jesus in the kingdom of God. To know this deeply and fully in our bones is to experience the present tense hope of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth and lastly, Christian hope has a future tense. We have eternity in our hearts. And the hope of Christ guarantees that our eternity will be spent in the presence of God forever. Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The future hope is that one day there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more trials and ugliness, for those things will pass. All will be well, and all manner of things will be well. So, we can hope fully, we can hope securely, we can hope in the now, and we can hope for all eternity. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up. I talked a little bit earlier about the different kinds of imitation hope. So let me ask you this question once again. What imitation hope could you be holding on to? What do you hope in besides Jesus that might be overstated or unhealthy? Could it be your retirement fund, your political party, your religious construct, a selfish dream, a false identity, or maybe something else? I'm going to give you a minute of silence right in this room, right in this place, to think about this and ponder it. Just sit there quietly in your seat, perhaps open your palms as an external expression of receiving from God. And in this next minute, ask the Holy Spirit to possibly reveal to you what you need to hear. Be honest with yourself. What golden idols are you holding on to? Let's pray together. You are the one true God. You are the one true hope. 
And Lord God, we confess that we too often build up these golden calves to put our trust in. Lord, help us to lay down our false salvations, our counterfeit hopes, our golden calves. Help us to turn only to you for our ultimate hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand.